Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. I've always wanted to talk about the incredible match of Bobby Lashley versus Triple H, and we get to do it today. <laughs> Wrong show. Wrong show. No, 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 no. I'm going to explain it when we get there. Okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us. Uh, as we, I just want to mention, as we record this, uh, it's, this is the first time I think we're actually recording on the day of an episode, but just schedules didn't work out. And so we are recording on Monday, July 26th. Tomorrow is the one year anniversary of this podcast. So I want to say thank you to you, Josh. I want to say thank you to our listeners. Uh, it's been, uh, it's been fun. Uh, I've been enjoying this and I was telling Josh just that it, in some ways feels like it's been going on for a long time. And in some ways it feels like we're just getting started. We still have in strike forces history. We still have another 10 months of shows to cover and that's without breaks. And when I say 10 months, I mean 10 months from now in, in real time, not 10 months of strike forces history left, but uh, yeah, we still got a ways to go. So hopefully you'll stick strap in and, and go along with us for the ride. But again, we, uh, we appreciate all the support. Well, you know, for me, it really just feels like the third round of a, Tim Kennedy, Jacare championship match. That's <laughs> well, all it feels like for me. <laughs> well, depending on your point of view, that could be either a good thing or a bad thing. So <laughs> but we'll get to that. All right. Well, we want, we do want to listen, uh, welcome our listeners to the show inside the Hexcon is about walking the, uh, walking through the major events, fighters and milestones of strike force, which was a very important, innovative MMA pro promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on the episode today, we will be discussing strike force Houston, which featured about for the vacant Strike Force middleweight title between Ronaldo Jacare Souza and Tim Kennedy. Former uh, former middleweight champ Jake Shields had vacated the belt and signed with the UFC, so we were guaranteed a new champion on this card. And we would also see a light heavyweight tilt between champion King Mo Lawal and challenger Rafael Fajal Cavalcante. Also featured on the card would be KJ Nunes, the aforementioned Bobby Lashley, and the big event debut of Daniel Cormier, D.C., I just want to quickly mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. But as we like to do, we want to talk about the fallout from the last Strike Force show that we covered, which is Strike Force Fedor versus Verdun. Uh, coming out of that event, the promotion was, while it was unlikely something Scott Coker would admit, it was reeling from another unfortunate 2010 occurrence. Uh, previously, we'd seen the post-main event brawl at Strikeforce Nashville, during which Jake Shields and the Diaz brothers and Gilbert Melendez had brawled with Jason Mayhem Miller, effectively getting Strikeforce kicked off of CBS in a very, very ugly scene. Then at Fedor versus Verdun, we'd see the consensus number one heavyweight in the world, Fedor Emelianenko, the one fighter Dana couldn't get, lose to a UFC cast-off in Fabricio Verdun in under 70 seconds, effectively killing the mystique around the most dominant fighter in the world at the time. Piling onto that, you have Strikeforce's middleweight kingpin, Jake Shields, relinquishing the belt, claiming he essentially had run out of challenges in Strikeforce and wanted some bigger fights, and saying, saying he was ready for the confines of the UFC's octagon. So just embarrassing uh not a good look um on the plus side coming out of that event you had josh thompson kung lee and chris cyborg all getting big wins uh but this would be uh, kung lee's last fight with the promotion cyborg really had no viable challengers in line 
So even with those positives, there were still negatives attached. And, and, you know, things have been looking so good for the promotion in the fall of 2009. Strikeforce, you know, signing Fedor, getting on CBS, seeing the emergence of fighters like Gagard Musassi, King Mo, uh, of course, Nick Diaz building his name, not even mentioning all the the events that they had, had lined up on CBS. I mean, things were looking very good at that point, and now they're not looking so good less than a year later. But let's delve into this event. We'll start with Jake Shields vacating the belt and leaving for the UFC. Just a week after defeating Dan Henderson in Nashville, the Strike Force champ was shown on camera next to Dana White at WEC 48. For those that don't remember, WEC was a big-time uh, promotion that was owned by the UFC, and it was home to basically the lighter weight classes, 125, 135, 145, before the UFC essentially ported those fighters and titles over to the UFC. Uh, but in that picture, UFC president has got his arm around uh, Jake's shoulders, exclaiming, he's mine. At the end of June, Scott Coker ended up releasing Shields from the renegotiation phase of his contract, which freed him up to go after the big fights in the UFC with guys like GSP and Anderson Silva. So, I, I mean, kind of diving a little bit deeper into this, Shields, obviously not the most exciting fighter, not a, ga- a great promo, uh, but he was dominant, and, you know, he had just overmatched uh, uh, Robbie Lawler and you know he's made Den Henderson look old and I mean he he was a guy that was you know he was doing really really well and from a promotional standpoint it just was not good optics for Strike Force losing your champion is never good for any promotion but when you're trying to present your company as a a viable contender if not at least a, a viable alternative to the UFC losing your champion to become uh, you know or losing your champion to that larger company I mean it just because you can't provide exciting enough matchups is an especially bad look. This is why we had the Montreal screw job. I mean, you're being real serious about it and I'm joking, but we're talking about the same thing. You don't want your, your champion to be unbeaten to go to the other promotion because people watching are going to say, wait a minute, like that guy's the best thing they had. And now he's over here. So we're going to go watch that. I think it's kind of funny that Dana White's like trumpeting him. Oh, he's mine. Um, I, I don't think he really knew Jake knew Shields. What, yeah, I don't think he knew what he was getting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, you know, he's going to squeak out two victories in the UFC. I'm so excited. No, I don't know how many times Jake won. But, I mean, he was a good fighter. But it's it's an odd thing to be boasting about because Jake was, I mean, quite honestly, Jake wasn't going to be a ratings driver or sell a whole lot of tickets, even at that time when he was at the top of his game. Yeah, I mean, his the, the his peak was definitely taking on GSP because it was 55,000 people, I believe, in either Montreal or Toronto. I think Montreal, but, you know, obviously GSP was going to be the major draw there and the major ticket driver. And But, you know, at that point, Jake was seen as the you know one of the best, if not the best grappler at 170 pounds. Uh, and, you know, he'd cut down to, to get back into that, you know, but but he wanted that fight, and I'm sure he made a lot of money off it. So, yeah, it's I, it's clear that Dana didn't understand really what he was getting. Uh, you know, D- Jake is a, an incredible grappler, and I really enjoyed interviewing him. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, just not going to set the world on fire with, again, these incredible promos, and, and he's admitted that he's not, you know, he wasn't great on the mic. So, yeah, I, I think it's very clear. He's more excited to get the champion from a, you know, what people were saying was a contender versus, you know, talking about the UFC, or I'm sorry, talking about Strike Force over to the UFC rather than, you know, really what he was getting with Jake as a fighter. 
So and and remember, Dan Henderson had left the UFC, and then they had this big fight where where Jake Shields beats Dan Henderson. So if we could go back in time, it's almost like this figurative passing of the torch. And now we got the young guy, and Jake didn't turn out to be the biggest star ever in the UFC. But in the moment, it was like, "Ha, huh, we got you, Strike Force." Yeah, pretty much. But after uh, after this event in Houston was announced, it was revealed that Olympian wrestler Daniel Cormier, who was then four and zero, would take on regional MMA vet Jason Riley on the undercard. Cormier was not a big name yet, uh, but he was seen as a fighter to watch for sure. He just won the King of the Cage heavyweight title, which is a, a that's a really good notch on your belt as a fighter. Uh, and he was getting back in the cage. This was just eight days after that win. So he was looking to, especially at his age and all the mileage on his body as he'd been an Olympic level wrestler. So lots of years of amateur wrestling, you know, he wanted to get as much experience as he could. Uh, and so he was getting back in the cage for a very quick one here. Uh, but kicking off the main card would be KJ Nunes coming off a solid decision win over Connor Hewn at Strikeforce Los Angeles. Uh, he would match up with UFC veteran Jorge, uh, George Gurgel, trainer of former UFC middleweight champion Rich Franklin. This one had Barner, Barn Burner written all over it as Gurgel uh, was known for wanting, despite being, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but wanting to be a... Uh, a banger, a stand, a stander and banger rather than he, I mean, one of the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys, I don't say one of the best, but a top level Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt here in the States. And, but he just wanted to stand and punch. Uh, and so he'd be looking to leapfrog noons to, to get to a title shot. Also on the card would be the return of former WWE star, Bobby Lashley. After dealing with some minor injuries, as well as criticism for not taking on tougher opponents, he would battle Chad, the Gravedigger Griggs. Griggs, a former IFL heavy, heavyweight, was 8-1 and one with three straight knockout finishes, and he would surely be a tough, a tough test for Lashley, who was undefeated at 5-0. and uh, And in an interview before the fight, Lashley said he was aiming for a Strikeforce heavyweight title shot the following year. Uh, he also said that he would brawl with Riggs if he wanted to, which would be a departure from his usual wrestling-heavy style. As for the co-main event, uh, the middleweight title would be up for grabs. There were rumors that there would be a tournament However, Strikeforce decided to match up Jacques Array and Tim Kennedy, which made a lot of sense. Although I would think Scott Coker would have preferred to have former champ Kung Lee in there. Uh, you know, again, former champion. He was coming off the, the big revenge win over Scott Smith, so that would have made as much sense as anybody. However, as he told us recently on this podcast, uh, he was busy with movies. So instead, it would be Jacques Array and Tim Kennedy fighting for the, the now vacant middleweight championship. Uh, Jacare was 2-0-1 in his last three with a solid decision win over Joey Villasenor in Strikeforce, while Kennedy had won four straight, including three finishes in a row in Strikeforce. Uh, he had beaten Trevor Prangley in Strikeforce Los Angeles with a very nice rear naked choke. Uh, he was also a highly respected uh, military star, or I say star, but veteran, and he had won uh, or been awarded medals. Very marketable star on the rise, while Jacare was seen as the next generation BJJ star uh, to be making his mark in MMA. The main event would feature a title fight between 205-pound champ King Mo coming off a rather lackluster decision win to get the title against Gegard Musassi in Nashville and challenger Fejal Cavalcante, who had gotten a big, big stoppage over Antoine Britt in his most recent fight. And this was a marketable bout featuring two stars on the ride. So, rise. So a nice, uh, nice, nice uh, main event fight there. In a fun note, in my notes, uh, or in my research, I found that former Green Power Ranger Jason David Frank had entered the pro MMA ranks just a few weeks prior to this Houston card, and he had mentioned in an interview that he wanted to be in Strikeforce. He'd gone 4-0 as an amateur that year, 
And at 36, he he stated in that interview saying that said that he wanted to head to Scott Coker's promotion. That would not end up happening for whatever reason, as he only had that one pro fight. I did get, I don't want to say I got to know him, but I got to work with him a little bit. Brian Butler of Sucker Punch Entertainment. Um, I was, it was Jason's manager and I, I got, I believe that I got some interviews uh, for, for the former Power Ranger. I don't remember exactly, but I, I believe that I, unfortunately I deleted my emails and a lot of my stuff from my time in MMA. So I have to go off of memory uh, for a lot of it, but it would have been pretty cool to see the, the green Power Ranger in uh, inside a, a big time UFC or UFC or Strike Force show. You know, Phil, in addition to my uh, pride deficiency, I don't know anything about the Power Ranger other than this guy wanted to fight CM Punk at one point. I, I, I'd have missed that whole period where this guy was sort of in the MMA, you know, world and culture. Yeah, like, I just remember him being kind of a joke, and then he's like, well, CM Punk gets a fight, then I want to fight him kind of thing. But what was the deal? Was this guy, like, legit, excited, yeah, like a he, big I deal, mean, or no? He had a lot of, he had a, uh, like, if I remember right, he had a karate background, Um and I mean, he fought five times in the space of like 10 months, four of them amateur. So he was real serious for a while. I don't know why he decided not to move forward or, or whatever, but yeah, he seemed pretty legit. He was um, the, one of the one I remember there was an MMA sponsor at that time called Jesus didn't tap. And he was, it was like fairly popular and he was one of the founders of the brand. And so, yeah, he was, he was trying to cross over and get involved with the sport. So um yeah, so he, I, would, I just, he would have beat Punk, is what you're saying. I I honestly think he would have. I mean, he had more, I think he had more legit training than Punk did. So, but yeah, I I mean, I, you're talking like Triller style boxing fights when you're oh we're gonna match up the Green Power Ranger with a former WWE champ. So, would have been kind of a circus sideshow, you know, bout that I'm sure some regional promotion would have wanted to put on and try to build a pay per view around. So. All right, uh, let's get back to just what was going on in the UFC at that time. Uh, we had uh, we would see bantamweight and featherweight champions crowned later in the year, so we're not too far from that. UFC light champ, lightweight champion still Frankie Edgar, GSP still the welterweight champ Anderson Silva, still the middleweight champ Marisha Shogun Hua, still the light heavyweight champ, and Brock Lesnar for a few more months uh, was still the undisputed heavyweight champion. UFC 118 took place on August 28, 2010 at the TD Garden in Boston, Massachusetts, drawing 14,168 fans for a live gate of 2.8 million and a pay-per-view buy rate of 570,000. And again, we, we haven't mentioned this in a while, but, uh, you know, you just have to go back. They made 2.8 million at the, at the box office off this, and we don't have a lot of the gate records for Strikeforce, or we have a bunch of them, but there's some that we don't like. Today's card, we don't have the, the gate, but... I mean, they just their biggest fights were were breaking a million dollars, and that was you know, and that was it. Like they were, this is this is UFC getting three times what you know this what Strikeforce would get almost three times what Strikeforce would get on its best cards. So again, it just goes to show you they were never really a a real viable contender. We were less than a year away from Strikeforce getting bought by the UFC. So it, it just again it just shows you, but they drew fourteen thousand one hundred sixty eight fans for a live gate of two point eight million and a pay per view buy rate of five hundred seventy thousand. On the main card, Nate Diaz got a technical submission win via guillotine over the Irish hand grenade Marcus Davis. In the main event, Frankie Edgar defe- defended his UFC lightweight title with a clean sweep decision win over BJ Penn. But the co-main event was really the big story here, as for just the second time in UFC history, a, per- a current professional boxer 
entered the octagon when James Tony, former multi-time world champion, took on Randy Couture. It was a quick one. Couture gave Tony no shot at <laughs> playing his game, took him down early and worked in uh, an arm triangle submission and, and got the win. So clearly a quick money grab for the former boxing champion, and that was it for him in MMA. Just quickly, props to James Tony for entering the octagon because as we know now, so many people run their mouths, you know, shoot off their mouths and say, I'll take on an MMA fighter in a boxing match. I mean, the truth of the matter is that's about the only way anybody could ever possibly win a fight with a with an MMA fighter is in a boxing ring. Because if you stepped into an octagon or, you know, hexagon or, you know, at the time, you're going to lose, you know. So, you know, props to Tony for actually wanting to do an MMA fight as opposed to forcing Randy to do a boxing match. I mean, I think it's a little bit gutsy and you don't really see that with all the stupidity in in entertainment fights that we see these days. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I can't disagree with you on that. Uh, and and you got to give Tony his respect for doing it. Um, but I, it still was a money grab. He didn't. He wasn't in great shape, and he had no pretense of doing anything other than trying to do what he knew how to do, which was stand, and no takedown D, nothing. So, <laughs> uh, but anyways, there were a couple challengers, Strikeforce challengers event here, and one of them extremely interesting. So we're, we'll get to those right now. But we had Del uh, Strikeforce challengers Del Rosario versus Mahe took place on July 23rd, 2010 at the Comcast Arena at Everett in Everett, Washington. A few notable bouts on this one. Mike Kyle submitted a Bongo Humphrey. Bobby Volker got a split decision win over Corey the One Devella. And Sarah Kaufman defended her Strikeforce women's Bantamweight title against Roxanne Modafferi with a knockout via slam. And then in the main event, heavyweight action, Shane Del Rosario TKO'd Lolohea Mahe in the first round. Interesting that the women's bantamweight title was once again being defended on a challenger show. Uh, I I just I feel like Coker just didn't like Sarah Kaufman or just didn't find her marketable because we would see when she lost the belt we would see that title defended on main Strikeforce events. So I don't know what the deal was, but uh, but yeah, we saw the bantamweight title once again defended on the challengers. Uh, and then in the, the second Challengers event that we want to cover, Riggs versus Taylor, is very interesting to say the least with some big names on it. There was a one-night women's bantamweight tournament to determine the next challenger to Kaufman's title. Uh, Liz Carmouche beat Colleen Schneider via unanimous decision, while Misha Tate beat Maiju Kujala via unanimous decision. Tomi Akano beat uh, Karina Dam by submission, and this set up a final between Akano and Tate, which the latter won via unanimous decision. I'm guessing the Liz Carmouche... Colleen Schneider one was an alternate bout with the winner basically going into the final if uh, you somebody or basically taking the place of a fighter that uh, got injured. I assume that's what that was. I, I, I couldn't find any ink on this. I, I couldn't find any coverage, but it did set up a final between Akano and Tate, uh, which the latter won via Nam's decision. The fight between Cupcake and Kaufman would take place just a few months later. And let me just say for all the woke progressive listeners we have, uh, Phil referring to Cupcake is actually what her nickname was yeah, yeah, at the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, I believe at some point it, it changed to Takedown Tate. Uh, she's not really Cupcake anymore, and of course yeah. she came back recently and you know is on the 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 road to uh, 
you know, a comeback in a title run. Um, you know, I will say, I just want to chime in a little bit. This is why Vince McMahon changes real people's names and, uh, you know, makes them characters because Liz Carmouche beat Colleen Schneider. Come on. You know, yeah. your name's Colleen Schneider. You need to have a different name, you know, and nobody want to watch that, that, that fight. <laughs> Definitely not based on the names. That's for sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you for jumping in with that. Uh, also on the card, Ryan Couture submitted Lucas Stark. So this was, I believe, the Strike Force debut of Randy Couture's son. And then Joe Riggs beat Lewis Taylor via submission by way of punches. Uh, that sounded like a fun card. I, I wouldn't have mind wa- minded watching that. Uh, Taylor would actually go on to win one of the PFL's million dollar season championship things. So uh, he uh, he was a uh, um, yeah, it was a big win for Joe Riggs. Uh, but let's get to the event itself. Strikeforce Houston uh, brought in 8,365 fans at the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, the broadcast on Showtime drew an average of 367,000 fan- viewers with a high of 470,000. Commentators were Gus Johnson, Frank Shamrock, and Mauro Ronallo. And Jimmy Lennon Jr. was handling the ring announcing. So I got something to say here, Phil. I have a statement and then I have a question for you. I'm going to put you on the spot here. But I do want to note that the promo package or, you know, the, the, the intro at the beginning of the show, Jake Shields is gone. Uh, it looks a little tweaked a little bit. They've redone it with different faces. Uh, and in Jake Shields place, if you remember the final shot used to be like Jake Shields throwing up his hands in the air, Randy Orton style. and sort of like, Oh, he's the future. And they replaced that with, uh, with Nick Diaz of all people. <laughs> so I don't know. That's kind of interesting that they, in their mind thought, Nick Diaz would be the one they would swap him out for. I guess that sort of um, shows like they didn't really know who their future star was. Obviously, if they did, they would add Daniel Cormier there. But I don't know. Like, I mean, Nick Diaz is obviously sells tickets and he's entertaining. But I don't know if that's somebody you want to build the company around, at least as the face in that context. Um, I do want to ask you, what's up with Strikeforce Houston? Like, what happened to the creativity with names? Why did they call the show that? Well, they, I mean, they were, David, that was kind of their thing for quite a while. They did, um, they did the versus thing. Um, but yeah, they ended up putting in the city that they were in, I think to show off where they were going, you know, because they were expanding, they were going into different States. Yeah. Uh, that's my guess. Uh, Yeah. It's not very exciting. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I, UFC member UFC used to do, uh, UFC Relentless and UFC Beatdown and UFC Warpath and all these different things. And eventually you run out of those types of superlatives. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think it definitely would make more sense. And I believe the next card is Diaz versus Noons 2. So I think they started <laughs> yeah. finally getting away from that, mm-hmm. you know, and realizing, like, you can't really. And, and you know, Fedor versus Verdun. So I think it was when they went to new cities right. they would do that. Uh, so yeah, it kind of seemed to be a, a mix and match, but to respond to what you said about Diaz is, you know, Frank Shamrock said in the buildup to their, their fight that Nick wasn't a good role model, excuse me, role model essentially, which I, I yeah, dude, the guy's, uh, you know, smokes weed and cusses and not very well spoken <laughs> and, uh, all that stuff. So yeah, I don't know that I would build around him as well. However, as far as like a marketable star goes, that's active, you know, at that point, Kung Lee was still there, so maybe you're maybe it should be Kung there. But where's the Josh Thompson love? Where's the you know Gilbert Melendez love? Like where's where are those yeah. guys? So yeah, right. you know, I, I I it's questionable. I wouldn't. I mean, DC was just getting started, so I I, I wouldn't have put him in there. But 
uh, yeah, there, you could definitely make a case for other guys being in there. Alistair, you know, I mean, why, why not end on your, your heavyweight champ who is a big dude and very intriguing looking and, and all that. So, yeah, there, you can make a case for other guys. And where the heck is Luke Rockhold? I mean, obviously, that's the guy you want to build the, the yeah, future he, around. He, but, yes, he, I know you're in love with him, but he hadn't <laughs> fought on a main uh, main strike force. But where, where is he? I mean, we yeah, talked I, about him a while ago, and then he's yeah. just kind of gone. I, I want to say he's injured at this point. I don't know for sure, but yeah, the strike force it's again, you have a bantamweight champion that on the, that's fighting on challenger cards. That's never mentioned on main cards. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like yeah. you, you have guys like DC and you have guys like Rockhold, and you have uh, uh, Billy Evangelista, I think might've been done at this point, but you have some rising stars and they're just, you know, they're not pushed, you know, they're not talked about. This is something that I feel like, pro wrestling is just always done better than MMA is, is really promoting and building up stars based on persona or based on what they're doing early on versus the fight that's like right in front of them. You know, I, I just feel like pro wrestling has just kind of always done it better and strike force fell victim to it as well, you know, and especially uh, that's, it is kind of egregious with them because you're trying, like you're, you don't have the depth of the UFC. So for the guys that are, you know, up and coming, like you really should be trying to build around them and build them up and make them bigger deals because you're going to probably keep losing your big guys to the UFC anyways, you know? So anyways, yeah, but I, I, I can't disagree with you there. Uh, one quick note before we jump into the results of this, this would be strike forces last event that would be branded with their original logo, which was essentially an S with uh, MMA gloves underneath it. And then had wings to the side of it, which I always liked that. Uh, they would go to a more traditional kind of S with a, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, kind of like a yin-yang type um, uh, type design. And, and that would actually be debuted at Diaz versus Nunes, and that would be their Diaz versus Nunes too, and that would actually be their final logo that they would use throughout the rest of their run. All right, let's get to the undercard. A bunch of fights here. Artinus Young defeated Chad Cook via unanimous decision at 205 pounds. At 135 pounds, Chad Robichaud defeated Humberto De Leon via split decision. 155 pounds, Rehu Trujillo defeated uh, Jose Santabanez via TKO coming by way of punches at 28 seconds of the first round. At another 155-pound bout, Adam Schindler defeated Kier Gooch via submission, come by way of rear naked choke at 155, or sorry, 158 of the first round. At 145 pounds, former Ultimate Fighter veteran Vinicius Magalhaes defeated Rocky Long via NAMS decision. And then at welterweight, Andre Galvo, who had handed uh, Luke Stewart, his, I believe, his first loss. He, he, in strike force, he defeated George Patino via TKO, come by way of punches at 245 of the third round, which brings us to essentially the main event of the undercard. Daniel Cormier defeated Jason Riley via submission, come by way of punches at 102 of the first round. As mentioned earlier, Cormier was 4-0 coming into this one. He had just won the King of the Cage heavyweight title uh, just eight days prior to this bout. But this was a chance uh, for DC to really grab some attention. First fight on a main Strike Force card. It was, again, the main event of the undercard, and it was streaming live on SureDog.com. So this is a chance for, for Cormier, for DC to get some eyeballs. Uh, Riley was 9-3, and three, had won three of his last four fights, and this fight is on UFC Fight Pass if you want to check it out. 
but a very quick one. Uh, DC shot in early on, but Riley did a good job stuffing it. Uh, but that was the end of the good moments for him as shortly after Cormier heard him with an overhand right, shot in, took him down, and then pounded on his head until Riley tapped. I mean, that was literally all there was to it. Dominant win for the future dual UFC champ. I just want to say you could really see Daniel Cormier's hunger here if, if you watch him. What they showed on Fight Pass, you know, it wasn't the traditional broadcast with the announcers. It was no commentary, and the camera angles were, were off. But you could see Cormier was super hungry and excited and wanted to be there. There was not any look of, I'm going to go in there and try to win and a tactical MMA fight. It was, I'm going to go in there and win and make an impact. And that was really cool. I mean, that's, I think, what people saw in D.C. early on. And every fight he had, he just kept getting better and better. And I loved how he walked into the uh, the hexagon and he he ran uh, around around it, like kind of like Ultimate Warrior style. Did you see that? He's just like, he was <laughs> ready. He was ready to go. I mean, all he needed to do was, you know, shake some ropes. But, you know, he was bringing a little energy to the hexagon there. So, I mean, I don't know if you saw that or not, but, I mean, this guy looked like a dude who was ready to fight. And it didn't matter who he was fighting. Ah, good insight. Good yeah. insight. But uh, both both DC and Riley would be back for Strike Force. The following year, so we'd be seeing more of him, and of course, he would make more of an impact. Talking about Cormier, of course, on Strike Force, so we'll talk more about that. But this brings us to the main card. I'm excited to talk about this, and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but this took place August 21st, 2010, uh, obviously in Houston, Texas. So I don't think I'd mentioned the date yet. So just wanted to throw that in there. Uh, but in the opening bout on the main card, I mentioned earlier it was actually going to be uh, it was supposed to be KJ Nunes and, and George Gurgel, but it ended up being Chad Griggs. And Bobby Lashley, Chad Griggs at a heavyweight, defeated Bobby Lashley via TKO, coming away of retirement at the end of the second round, which is kind of misleading. I hate that they put that, but they can't put like he quit. You know, that just doesn't <laughs> doesn't sound good. Uh, but yeah, he, he essentially stopped at the end of the second round, and we'll get to why in just a second. But Griggs was 8-1 and one with seven KOs and one submission coming in, so all finishes. Uh, also, he was a full-time firefighter and paramedic at the time and a former training partner of the Predator, Don Fry. Uh, he had last fought in April of 2009, so cage rust might be a factor uh, here. Lashley, again, 5-0, and two KOs and two submissions, an American top team product. He had trained some with AKA before this fight, actually, including with both Cain Velasquez and Daniel Cormier, and Cormier had been asked if he'd be willing to fight Lashley, and he said absolutely, and we all know what a huge WWE fan Daniel Cormier is. Uh, so I'm sure that would have been fun. I'm sure Cormier would have just destroyed him, but that would have been a fun one to watch for sure. I'm kind of, kind of bummed that we never got to see that in Strike Force. Um, I got to say, uh, Lashley doesn't look. I don't know how you feel about this, but Lashley does not look a, a, a whole lot different now than he did then. Uh, and I did want to mention Jimmy Lynn Jr. announced him as a former two-time WWE champion in the cage. I, I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, I, I, I guess. You know, the purists out there are going to be like, why does that matter? But I thought it was kind of cool. Not everybody gets that spot. It's a significant accomplishment. And uh, usually you got to have something good going about you if you're going to be champion. So um, I, I did notice he got a huge pop from the crowd, which, uh, you know, made sense for Strikeforce to have him there. And he did have a legit background, you know, as a, as a, as a wrestler. So Yeah, he was a former uh, national champion as a junior um uh, obviously as an amateur and it was juco if i remember correctly um he wasn't like a division one 
champion, but yeah, he was a legit amateur wrestler for sure. Um, I just want to note that, you know, even when I was watching this in 2010, the only thing I could think about was Chad Griggs to me looks like Triple H. I mean, with those sideburns, even yeah, the, 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 the massive chops. Yeah. But even the chest, he's got like a Triple H chest, you know, not the jacked up one, the enhanced one Triple H has, but he looks like him. They're very similar. So I thought it was kind of getting into this as sort of like a, you know, a dream, dream wrestling match. So um, I was really excited watching this fight in real time, uh, just thinking, wow, it's Bobby Lashley inside the hexagon. This is this wrestler. Like, this is so cool. And then... You know, you kind of don't know what to make of Chad Griggs. I mean, he's obviously uh, got something to offer. And you could tell looking at him, this guy was not going to be a pushover. So I remember at the time just thinking this was like, you know, this could be the main event for me. I was so excited about this fight. All right. Well, I I don't think that he looks like Triple H, but like, other than the chops. But I, I guess I could see that if I really look hard. But it's... I was actually trying to Google if Lashley and Triple H ever actually wrestled. Um, and I, I, I don't, I keep seeing this uh, Bobby Lashley versus Triple H at super showdown. But I think this is like, I think these are video games. Like, I don't, I don't think they ever, so yeah, I don't think they ever actually had like a, you know, quite honestly, not that we're not that we're going to do a pro wrestling podcast here, but uh, I could totally see Triple H not wanting to be, in a ring next to oh, Bobby Lashley. Yeah, who who like like if you're, yeah. <laughs> I mean Triple H got into the ring when he was in like his less cut phase against uh, Scott Steiner, right? Like, and they did the pose down and, or no no no, I think actually I think Steiner I think I think H was in good shape still at that point, but yeah, why would he want to stand next? I mean, who would want to stand next to Bobby Lashley besides maybe big pa the big Papa Pump version of Scott Steiner? <laughs> so, but yeah. Anyways, all right. Well, for the fight itself, Lashley took Griggs down within about ten seconds of the opening bell. So, so much for the "I'm going to stand and bang with you" thing. Uh, he did a decent job trying to advance position, but Griggs was just. I mean, if you've ever seen a guy on top of a guy where the guy underneath was winning the fight, I mean, it happens once in a while, but. Griggs was just doing a really good job at avoiding any damage. He was very, very active from his back and eventually got up, but Lashley took him right back down. So he didn't have good takedown D. He could get taken down, but he seemed to be able to, you know, kind of play the game on the mat. And uh, But by Lashley, this second one really in particular stood out to me as, uh, you know, really expending a lot of energy for Lashley to take him down and, uh, but he stood back up. The grave digger landed a nice knee to the to the abdomen of Lashley, and after a ref restart, Lashley grabbed another good takedown. But R Griggs was was clearly hurting Lashley with strikes while getting uh, being taken down, and he even cut the former WWE star uh, pretty badly towards the end of the round. This is where I got kind of fired up because Gus Johnson on commentary said of Lashley, "Now, because uh, and sorry, let me uh, let me cut myself off there." Uh, they had a little conversation in the first round of asking Frank Shamrock, who's kind of, I guess, kind of a, even though he probably should have been more asking Mara Ranallo about it because he's knows more about wrestling than, than Frank does. Uh, but Mauro, uh, the three of them were kind of talking about why would Bobby leave WWE to go into MMA? And I, man, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, Josh, but Frank said, you know, well, the, he, he actually said that, that wrestling stars work harder than MMA guys. And we all know, 
that, you know, hey, they, they wrestle 200 when there's not COVID going on. They wrestle a couple hundred times a year. You know, the constant pounding from that. And with MMA, obviously you're training when you're, you know, in training camp, but you're not training necessarily year-round. And you're not, I mean, if you're busy, you're fighting three times a year. So it's just, you know, it's a very different uh constant pounding on your body and, and wrestling is, yeah, in a lot of ways more difficult on the body for sure. And, you know, you're trying to look like you're hurting somebody while not hurting them and all that stuff. So they had a, a good conversation about that. And Frank really was uh, a defender of wrestling in a lot of ways. But then Gus Johnson says of Lashley, now that he's seen his blood, real blood, I, oh man, I wanted to punch that dude in the face. Before that. <laughs> I was so mad. I hate that. Like, it's you can probably count on one hand in the modern area how many times they've used you know fake blood it's very very rare if you see them spitting blood out of their mouth like where it's not that's not true if they do the 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 thing where like oh he took a you know coup de gras to the stomach or he took a chair to the gut and then like they're you know they have deep deep red blood coming out of their mouth then yeah they probably did a blood capsule but like cuts to the forehead, you can't do fake blood with that stuff. Like it would never, it would just look fake. It would never work. And so when he said, so I, oh, when he said, when he said, no, now that he's seen his blood, real blood, I, oh, I wanted to punch him in the face. Yeah, I was, I was over Gus on this show. Like this is the it, it for me. Uh, his commentary was very annoying. Um, and then him asking Frank Shamrock, let me just say that. Frank Shamrock, I mean, I love the guy because, like, he totally put pro wrestling over. Yeah. And and even if you don't like pro wrestling, what Shamrock was trying to say there was, you know, he gets it. This is the entertainment business. And, yes, obviously, it's very different. You know, as Ronda Rousey said, if you fought, you know, 200 times a year or 300 times a year, you for real you'd be dead you know she had that great line you know when she was pissed off right after becky lynch was taking her spot yes we get that okay you can't legitimately fight 300 times a year but shamrock was pointing out that hey this is harder on your body than doing camp once a year or twice a year and you might get hit and you might submit and you might risk getting you know your arm broken or something but when you're a pro wrestler, you're just, it's like gradual. You're just constantly getting beat down, up, beat down over and over, night after night. And he was acknowledging that. And he said, why would you not do MMA for a couple times a year? You know, what, you know, that's it's, it's, it's less on your body, but you make more money in pro wrestling. So I thought it was really cool, which made me think, why didn't Frank ever get into pro wrestling? He's a little small, I guess, but. They totally, he totally, just on his talking alone, they could have made some money off him. So, I don't know. Uh, but, Gus, I was done. Um, as you just said, uh, Phil, the blood in pro wrestling is real. So, Gus saying that is, like, taken right out of 2020 in the 1980s. It's like, yeah. come on, Gus, give, give me a break. As you were talking, I'm trying to think of the times when somebody spit out, like, deep, deep red blood and you kind of knew, like, that was a capsule. I can't even think of it, you know, like... It's, it's, it's happened. I can't think, I, I know Roman Reigns has done it within the last few years. It, it, it happens here and there. It's, I always think it's dumb because it's like, you're not like, first, if you're bleeding out of your mouth, like it's coming up, not because you got hit in the mouth, but because you got hit in the stomach, like you need to go to the ER. Like, like that's like really, really serious. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, it's happened and it's, it's, but it's, it doesn't happen that often. 
you know? So yeah, I agree with you. I, I was not, I just, that really ticked me off with Gus and I just, yeah, I was kind of, somebody needs to show, somebody needs to show Gus Johnson beyond the mat. And that's the last thing I'll say about that. There you go. Uh, but that, it was a very, it was a very gnarly cut. It was moon shaped underneath his left eye. I'm pretty positive that Lashley has a very recognizable scar underneath his left eye from it. I, cause I remember that moon shape scar. I'm almost positive. It's still there. So well, yeah, he's definitely got something on his left side of his face. So, well, he's got two things. I, he's okay. got two. No, no. He's got like this. Uh, it looks like a burn. It's like a Ridge yeah. and it, like a straight line, like a deep, deep straight line. Um, but yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he's still got that, uh, that scar underneath his eye. So this is, if it is there, it's, uh, this is where it came from. So um, I'm trying to like quickly. Uh, I'm, try- I'm trying to quickly uh, Google it to see if it's still there. Bobby Lashley's face. Is that what yeah. you're googling? Well, I, no, I just I put in I put in Bobby Lashley scar. Yeah. But anyways, I'm kind of I'm not seeing anything that's really easy to look at, so I I can't really see. But anyways. All right, Lashley breathing pretty deeply, even as the second round started. Regardless, big slam takedown from him to start off the middle frame. He worked that for a while, eventually got full mount. But, man, he had clearly gassed himself out. The cut and the blood were getting worse. And despite him being in top position, the cut being below and to the side of the eye, Lashley was clearly not doing well. Uh, the doc stopped. The ref actually timed and or got time, and the docs checked the, checked the, uh, the cut with about 33 seconds left and I mean, you could just you could also see it a large mouse over the left eye too. So he was just in bad shape. He was able to continue, and on the restart, he took some big breaths before shooting in again. Griggs was finally able to avoid uh, the, the takedown attempt, and he dropped down some super heavy hammer hammer fist to the head, which drew blood from Lashley's right ear, probably from from cauliflower. Um, but uh, he, he just man, and then he dropped one after the bell, which I think was kind of a a jerk move. Uh, and then the ref asked Lashley how he was. He, I think he said, I'm done. And that was it. And, uh, you know, just the combination of the cut is lacking conditioning, some very hard shots, uh, to the head at the end of the round, it just sealed the deal and big time win for the, for the grave digger. I, I, I wasn't a fan of, of kind of how he was in this fight. Like I felt like he was just kind of a jerk. Like Bobby was tired and like he ref was trying to get him to stand up and Lashley was just taking his time and, Griggs like pushed him and I just I was not a fan of of how Griggs acted but that's just kind of me being probably overly <laughs> uh overly sensitive to you know one of my wrestling guys being made to look bad <laughs> yeah I I didn't really pick up on that I, I think Chad was just so excited about winning that he didn't really know how to handle it because this was such a big victory for him let me talk a little bit about Lashley I think he's just too muscular for MMA. I think oh, yeah. it, it's too R- much. R- Rogan has always talked. Rogan's always talked about more muscles need more oxygen. So if you're yeah. too pumped up, it is not good for your conditioning in MMA for sure. Yeah. And so he's just carrying a lot of weight. He needs a lot of oxygen to breathe. And in this fight, he got tired real fast and it's not fun to watch a guy who looks that good, just kind of fall apart. They become human right in front of your eyes. And it's a good reminder that, bodies don't win fights right and so you know you look at both of them you think oh Bobby Lashley's gonna crush this guy and it's like well no not necessarily um Lashley spent too much time in this fight like trying to take Griggs down and and then try to hammer him but 
it, it was just it, he was fighting too tactically. He like Bobby Lashley was trying to win an MMA fight, whereas Chad Griggs was trying to win a fight. And I think that was the difference here. As Bobby knew his strengths, he knew how he was going to win. It was going to be just sort of take him down, grind on him, and do his thing. But, you know, Chad Griggs was just like, hey, I've been here before, and um, I'm going to figure out a way to, to be smarter, you know, to win this thing. Um, I also think the cut did have an impact because Lashley looked at the blood. And, like, when you're aware of the blood, like, it does something to you. It makes you, to most fighters, it makes you feel like, uh-oh, what's going on with me? It's just that visual impact. And I don't know if Lashley, I mean, he had it. He hadn't been in that kind of trouble inside, uh, you know, the hexagon before or any of the places that he has fought. So I think that was a big deal, seeing that blood. He's he's breathing really hard. And that knee in the first round to the breadbasket, I think that is really what ended the fight. I don't think he ever recovered from that. It was just, it took the wind out of him. You know, he's he's gasping. That was a vicious, vicious knee right there. And so, it was. you know, I, I don't think he was ever able probably to even get a deep breath after that. Um, it, it was, you know, really, really good fight for Griggs. Uh, somehow did it. Uh, you know, Lashley just, he had a chance early on, but he just couldn't finish. He didn't know what to do. Right. He didn't know. He didn't try for any submissions. Right. He just kept trying to pound the guy, and Griggs was was avoiding it. And the best part was Chad Griggs didn't even need a sledgehammer to pull off this victory. I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you, you need to look at it again. This guy is Triple H's brother. There's no All doubt. Right, I'll, ha- I'll have to take another look. <laughs> I know he had a, a prominent proboscis, as uh, Gorilla Monsoon would say, so maybe. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think the key part of that, though, is that he didn't – once he got those takedowns, he just didn't see – like you said, he just didn't seem to know what to do. And I think it was Frank at one point said, somebody teach this guy a, a, an arm uh, arm triangle mm-hmm. because he had, like, the positioning for it and, and didn't know to go for it. So – yeah, this it just, you know, guy just too much, too fast, and didn't didn't know enough yet, you know? So, uh, but Griggs would be back in strike force the following year, while this would actually be it for Lashley uh, with, with the promotion. He would go on to win nine of his ten fights in his career, including three straight in Bellator to wrap up his MMA run in 2016 with a 15-2 rally. And, you know, or, I'm uh, sorry, 15-2 tally. Looking back on his career, I mean, 15-2 is a very impressive record, but, I mean, he really didn't fight a lot of, yeah, he just didn't fight. He fought a lot of tomato cans, to be honest with you. I mean, James Thompson was a, a big name, and Thompson beat him, and then Lashley came back and beat him, and I believe Dan Charles and and uh, Josh Appel. Like, he's got, like, some names I recognize, but, uh, yeah, he just he never really, you know, really went for it. Like I said, I mean, his two losses are to this one to Griggs and then one to James Thompson. And, you know, uh, yeah, but despite his lack of charisma and Mike skills, I mean, I just, I think he was truly better suited for pro wrestling. And I think it really shows how much Vince McMahon really doesn't pay attention to MMA or hates MMA because you got an MMA fighter who's 15 and two and, and they don't really play Lashley up at all no, as being no. an MMA fighter. No, ever. they don't. No. They play him up as, you know, as being, you know, a, a badass, but not an MMA fighter. You know, I, I think Bobby probably could have been good in MMA, um, but I don't think he ever fully committed. And he always knew he could do wrestling and make more money, as Frank Shamrock said. 
And um, I think he had that in his back pocket. So a guy like Chad Griggs is, is, is fighting for every ounce of his being to sort of make it big. A guy like Lashley's like, well, if I can't make this work, I'll do something else. So I think it affects your hunger and your desire a little bit. Um, I mean, he knew his physique is his meal ticket. I mean, he's like John Cena. He's like this genetic sort of freak. Like they're just massively huge and so they 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 know that they can do other things so i think that came into play here he would need it to work harder get a better camp devote full time just forget all about pro wrestling and you know he had to he needed to improve his cardio you know i the dream match i wanted to see was lashley versus herschel walker i thought that would have been amazing that 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 would have been a fun one to watch i would have been up for that for sure so that's a good that's a good call. I, I would have liked to have seen that one, and that would definitely have been. I, I just I think Lashley was more suited for those, you know, kind of again circus side show fights versus like, uh, uh, and he had to try. But I, I to me this was the end of him as a contender. You know, this was like this was it. You know, he's fighting a guy that nobody knows, even though he's eight and one with eight finishes and should have been a, seen as a threat. You know, he came in. That's why he celebrated like he was Rocky. Because he was saying there was like 15 people in the crowd that thought I was going to win and they were all my family members. So, yeah, you know, he's the underdog and all that stuff. And then he comes in and just destroys Lashley. Although to, I got taken down at will, basically only stuffed one takedown. So, yeah, it just I agree. But I, I just feel like he would have been suited better for like, yeah, like the Herschel Walker or, you know, fight. um Batista when Batista had his one MMA fight, you know, the, like those kinds of things versus like legitly you know, legitimately fighting guys that are going to, going to hurt him, you know, and that's what we yeah. saw. And, and, so. and be wary of the firefighters, you know, Stipe, Chad Griggs, yeah. tough guys. Uh, Don, Don Fry was a, a I don't <laughs> oh, I don't yeah. know if he, yeah, he fought fires. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the next fight at 155 pounds, KJ Nunes defeated uh, George Grigel via TKO come by way of punches at 19 seconds of the second round. Very controversial fight. We talked about this with Nunes. Uh, when I interviewed him not too far, far back, but I, I got, I just will never understand George Gurgel as a fighter. I, he's not a name that's remembered today very much, but again, high level Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Uh, I think he was under Marcus Aurelio, which he was extremely legit uh, black belt. Uh, but all he wanted to do was stand and bang. And he's 13 and six coming into this fight. And guess how many wins he had by knockout? Zero. Nine submissions, four decisions, no knockouts. But, you know, hey, it's a free country. And and Frank Shamrock actually talked about this on commentary. Some he said he talked to George about it, and George was just like, basically, I've been doing I've been doing jujitsu my whole life. Like I don't want to get in there and do what I have always done. I want to get in there and have fun and let it let my hands go. And you know, he did have obviously he had Muay Thai training, but just makes no sense if you're wanting to win. You know, and yeah, so. Nunes was eight and one with six knockouts coming in. So again, even less makes it, you know, Nunes is a pro boxer and pro kickboxer and has six knockouts in his eight wins in MMA. And yeah, you're going to stand and bang with him. Good, good call. Anyway. So Gurgel to his credit did land a good shot early on and he did land some good shots in this fight, but little action in the first few minutes as they kind of uh, felt, they felt things out about a minute and a half left. Gurgel had a cut under his eye, looked like a solid combo landed by Nunes had, had Cut, had cut him basically. Grigel did go for a takedown with under a minute left, but Nunes evaded, landed a couple really nice digging body shots. Uh, and after a, a solid one two combination to Grigel's face, we were close to the end of the round, and this is where things got really interesting. 
With about 10 seconds left, the two really let go with Nunes ducking while Grigel just unloaded shots. And a split second after the bell, Nunes unleashed a left hook that landed absolutely flush to the chin and floored the Brazilian. Uh, Grigel got right back up, but he was on fish legs. He didn't know which corner to go to. I mean, he was in bad shape. I have no idea if the ref even admonished Nunes, but if he didn't, he should have. Because to me, that was about as egregious of a late, you know, post-bell shot as you can get. Uh, if Grigel wouldn't have been able to continue, it should have been a DQ win for him. But, uh, you know, no one ever said that George Grigel wasn't tough, and he looked to be okay. I mean, he was kind of nodding and at, at the beginning of the second round, like, yeah, you know, he got me, but I'm good, and seemed to be, be clear-eyed. He even touched gloves with Nunes at the beginning of the second round. Uh, the commentators were still discussing the late shot from Nunes when he landed another combo that seated Gurgel, this time legally. Gurgel was clearly hurt. He was grappling for Nunes' legs while the Hawaiian kept pounding him. And he was uh, Nunes was looking at the ref, seeing if he was going to finally stop the fight and kept hitting him and then inexplicably threw a knee to the, the grounded Gurgel's face as the ref was finally stepping in. And there was some, some confusion. I mean, Morrow and Frank actually argued over it Um as to whether or not it was a legal knee, uh, the fight, we weren't even sure the fight was actually over. Grigel got up protesting, blood streaming from two cuts on his eyebrow, as the commentators pointed out, the blatantly illegal knee. Frank and Morrow were going back, excuse me, back and forth over the legality of it, but the replay settled it. I mean, it was both to the head of a down, downed opponent and after the ref was in process of stopping it. And I honestly feel like, I just I feel like Grigel should have gotten a DQ win, or at the very least, the fight should have been determined in no contest. I mean, to me, this referee blew it by being late, and then blew it by not ruling that this was you know this was illegal. And uh, for what it's worth, on a recent episode of Inside the Hexagon, KJ Noon said it was simply the heat of the moment, definitely not on purpose. However, you know, as a professional, uh, you need to be in control, uh, uh, you know, at all times, and it just was bad form. I really think that this should have been a DQ. Uh, Yeah, I just think it should have been a DQ or a no contest. Did you tell KJ Nunes that, Phil? Uh, You say it was bad form? (laughs) I told him, if I remember right, I think I told him that it looked illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't, you know, yeah, I'm probably going harder at him now than I did on the call. But, I mean, like I said, he he said that he felt like it wasn't, you know, he definitely wasn't being um, intentional about it. So, but, it, I, you know, at the same time, you know, and I didn't say, hey, as a professional, you should be in control at all times. No, you got me on that. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know, man. I just, yeah, it was it's just not not a good look at all. Yeah, well, I, I pick up a little bit of those vibes from Gergel. You know how I feel about Luke Rockhold. I feel the opposite about Gergel. There's something about him that just really, I just don't understand him. He really rubs me the wrong way. I don't know if it's fighting style or what, but he just seems... I don't know. He's got a weird style. He just seemed out of place. And then when KJ knocked him out, like, or knocked him down at the end of the first round, like, oh, I felt so bad for him. He was so gone. You know how some fighters, when they get knocked out, they just, they just go down, right? They just, they, you know, they get up. Gurgal looked drunk. You know, he looked like he just got off a roller coaster. He looked out of it, you know. So he, he just... It was just this weird space where he's caught in between consciousness and unconsciousness, and it was not pretty to watch him take that shot. So, you know, I, 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 he shouldn't have been fighting KJ Nunes. It was just a physical 
mismatch just in terms of i don't know their height or kj looks like he's fighting under you know his weight class gurgel's fighting up it just did not seem like it was a good matchup uh, there's no way he was going to beat kj noons there's just no way and you could see that really really early early on um i agree with you noons clearly hit him late after the bell it was in the heat of the moment but too bad. That's not an excuse. It shouldn't happen. Um, and I would tell KJ this if he was on this call right now, just to let you know, Phil. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but you're a, you're a real <laughs> tough guy. <laughs> yeah, right. I, uh, you know, I'm the pro wrestling guy, so you know, I, I talk a good game. So, but you know, it shouldn't happen. It is the heat of the moment, and KJ is a boxer. Like he should know. Oh, the round's about to end, and and so. Unfortunately, that was the shot that put Gurgel away. I mean, that was the one. He was never able to recover, even though it looked like he was. You know, he was out of it, and then he got tagged two more times in the next round, and it was over. So, yeah, he probably should have been DQ'd. And, and definitely, that, that was it a knee? Yeah, it was a kick. It was kind of like a shin. It was a kick. Yeah, yeah it was, but it clearly connected because it cut him open. On the on the eyebrow, so I don't know if that's like Dunes being more of a boxer, and you know, I, I mean, he, I guess he had kickboxing, but it's just strange. Like, why would you do that? Like, the guy's done; it's over. Weird, very odd. You're supposed to be a professional. This is not a bar fight, you know. And, and so, yeah, I I think he got away with two things, and I think a little bit of a double standard. Nick Diaz had done that. Frank Shamrock had done that. All hell would have broke loose. But, you know, KJ's the easygoing guy, so he got away with it. But it was, it was, you know, I wish I had never watched that fight. Quite frankly, <laughs> it was not fun to watch. Yeah. yeah. Well, both Nunes and Grigel would be back in strike force with Nunes back to headline Nunes versus Diaz 2 for the welterweight title a month and a half after this win. Uh, at 185 pounds, uh, Jacare Souza defeated Kim Ten Kennedy. Excuse me, Kim Kennedy. Tim Kennedy via unanimous decision to win the vacant Strikeforce Middleweight Championship. Former Abu Dhabi champion and five-time BJJ World Champion Jacare was 12-2-0-1, coming in with 10 submission wins. Kennedy was 12-2 with five knockouts and six submissions. Uh, he had done some training with Jackson Wink before this fight, working with Gio, Joey Villasenor, uh, who had lost by decision to Jacare recently. So this, you know, basically helped fill in the Army vet on Jacare's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but getting to the fight itself, Big John McCarthy was the referee for this one. Big USA chant early on, to be as to be expected, with Kennedy, a native of Texas, so he's in his home state here. Uh, so yeah, that was I. I don't the USA chance. I'm like, look, if it's like USA versus like a, you know, like I don't know Iran or something like that, like you know a, a or China, you know, like a like a like an actual you know rival country of ours. Uh, yeah, yeah, we we don't got any issues with Brazil, so I, I don't get the whole USA thing when it's, you know, we're against a country that we're not against. You know what I'm saying? So. Yeah, I mean, I think in 2021, you know, unless it's Kurt Angle. Or, you know, it's like an Olympian hero. I mean, I guess with Kennedy, you know, I get it. He's a proud patriot. But, yeah, it's kind of weird. You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, Brazilian and their huge MMA culture. So, yeah. I say it's only good to chant USA if you're fighting somebody from North Korea, from the yeah. government. How yeah. about that? Or, ch or China. <laughs> or China. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so Jacques Ray clearly out to strike here. He landed a nice left hand to the face about a minute and a half in and, Shamrock pointed out how little head movement Kennedy was utilizing. I had to agree. He just wasn't moving 
a whole lot at all, uh, but a, a definitely impressive opening round for the Brazilian who landed a right push kick multiple times, and it was it seemed to be pretty effective. Yeah, I, I feel like Kennedy was just uh, a slow starter. Um, you know, when he fought Trevor Prangley, he he looked entirely different, and in this fight, he was very aware of uh, what Jacare could do if the fight went to the ground. Way too defensive of a first round, and so Kennedy quickly was fighting out of a hole. Yeah, and, and we saw really more of this in the second. Uh, not really, uh, m- most of the round, not even a thought of a takedown from Jacare. He did go for one with about a minute left, but Kennedy stuffed it. Um, despite that, Jacare clearly had round two in the bag as well, in my opinion. Yeah, again, and Kennedy still just too much respect for Jacare. Like, you've got to go in there, and, you know, it's a championship fight, and he's wasting rounds here by just trying to get a feel. It's a little bit too much. Yeah, but Kennedy got cut in the third round uh, over his left eye from a Jacare right hand about halfway through. Bad spot, streaming blood pretty steadily, and not long after that, he did land a, a takedown, put Jacare on his back, but Jacare was up in short order. Uh, short order. Kennedy bleeding pretty badly, solid left mouse under, or sorry, solid mouse under his left eye, um, and, and Jacare had little of any damage as we entered into the championship rounds. Better hands from Kennedy early on in the fourth. Really, really good takedown D. Uh, he actually stuffed every takedown attempt from Jacare. Um, and, you know, and, and while Kennedy actually did land one or two takedowns, Kennedy seemed to be getting frustrated at the end of the round, feeling like Jacare wasn't engaging like he should. And as the fifth started, uh, it was, I definitely saw Jacare as being ahead while the commentators felt like it was more of a, more of a split fight, pretty close. Uh, but more of the same in the final round, both fighters landed some good, if unspectacular strikes. It's kind of funny as I was taking my notes uh, with about 10 seconds left, there was no, I, I was writing that there were no big like highlight moments or signature moments or anything like that. And then Ken, Kennedy landed this really nice like waist slam takedown, picked him up and just slammed him down. It was really, really nice. And he might've thought that cinched the wind for him. However, in the end, I had to give the nod to Jacare. I just think he was all around better, even despite getting all his stuff, his takedowns getting stuffed, and the judges agreed. But it was definitely close. If I remember right, too, the judges had it 48-47 for Jacare, and I think one of them had 49-46 for Jacare. So it was definitely close. Uh, but, yeah, Kennedy secured two of his three takedown attempts. Jacare was 0 for 4. Kennedy also landed a higher per- higher percentage of the strike. So the stats seem to show that Kennedy had won, but as we know, all know statistics can be deceiving. Yeah, I think Tim Kennedy only has himself to blame here, and it's sort of a, a theme of his career. He is a uber-athlete, right? He, he looks tremendous, and just, you know, he's really skilled. You know, there's no doubting that, but he's an athlete, and um, I feel like a lot of his fights, he was more of an athlete than he was a fighter. And clearly in this case, he was too cautious. He was defensive. He started slow. He wanted no part of a ground game with Jacare. He didn't feel like he would come out of that. And I think there's a little bit of honor involved here where this guy's an American hero. And he he doesn't want to submit. You know, he does not want to have to say he quit inside a cage. So I think that took him out of his his game plan. And I think he, he just fought a fight that was more about tactical than it was about just from the gut and from the heart. And, um, you know, he, this is a, you know, a bad pun, but it's true. You know, this guy's a sniper, but he didn't pull the trigger inside the mm-hmm. cage at all. He just didn't, you know, he just was waiting around and, and then the fight was over. So 
I mean, I, I don't know what you think of that. You know, we've both talked about our respect for Tim Kennedy, but I just feel like if I'm his corner in this fight, I'm just going nuts. I'm like, geez, Kim, like you got to do a little bit more if you want to win this thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree that it, he never seemed to pull the trigger in this fight. Like he just never seemed to really go for it. And he was frustrated and they gave a post-fight interview. Uh, I don't know if it was at the press conference or talking directly to uh, MMA Weekly, but they posted an interview from him and he's just, you know, basically kind of frustrated and, and, you know, blaming himself. But um, yeah, I mean, that's really all he can, all he can do is blame himself because he just never really went after it. But big win for Jacques Ray joined fellow Black House members, Anderson Silva and Jose Aldo as world champions. Uh, and both he and Bennett Kennedy would be back in, in strike force in 2011. I believe they both took on Robbie Lawler the next year, which is interesting. Uh, but the champ defended against Lawler and Kennedy took on Melvin Manhoff. I'm looking forward to covering both of those fights, but we are at main event time. Here we go. This was going to be a, a very interesting fight. 205 pounds. Fajal Cavalcante defeated King Mo Lawal via TKO coming away with punches and elbows at 114 of the third round to win the Strikeforce light heavyweight title. Fajal was 9-2 and two coming in, eight knockouts, one submission, and a Dallas native, King Mo, was 7-0 and with five knockouts, so he would definitely be the home favorite. But uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, super innovative takedown defense from Fajal early on. Mo scooped up his legs and almost had him down, but Fajal posted one of his hands and his arms against the mat and was able to maneuver his body out of it, which was really, really nice. Uh, however, a, a short time later, Mo again scooped up the Brazilian's legs and picked him up in his arms, kind of like a baby, before slamming him down, <laughs> uh, which was which was also very nice. But I thought that was a, I thought it was an entertaining first round. Uh, Feijão clearly the more technical striker with Mo swinging wildly at times. Uh, the Brazilian nailed the champ with a really nice right knee later on in the first, but a good good first round, entertaining. Uh, really solid leg kicks from the challenger, including at the beginning of the second round. And later on, after a missed kick, Mo grabbed a, a leg and got a single leg takedown. Feijal was back up pretty quickly. Uh, he was clearly the bigger, stronger fighter. I, I got to say, I, I believe he weighed in at 203 pounds for this, Feijal. He just looked massive. I mean, he just so much bigger um, than Mo, in my opinion. Like, uh, noticeably bigger than, in my opinion. But. Mm. Uh, Mo did land some good body shots in the sec as the second or sorry yeah excuse me as the second round wore on but really not a lot of action from either fight, fighter. Fajal stopped a late takedown attack but take late takedown attempt but I'd have to give that first round the second round to the champ uh, so I'd put it at a one and one and then things blew up in the third round. Fajal landed a really good knee early on but Mo seemed all right. He blitzed in and wound up throwing some really really digging hard uppercuts to the body. Fejo grabbed a Muay Thai plum and threw a couple knees. The first one missed, but that second one connected solidly. Mo was hurt. He started falling backwards. The Brazilian caught him with a right hand that sent him to the mat. Mo tried for a takedown, but the challenger just unleashed a rain of punches and elbows to the head. Mo was, they were pressed up against the cage and Mo was still trying to take the fight to the ground. But at one point you could see it on replay. His arm dropped because Fejo was just unrelenting and Champ was no longer defending, and, and Big John stepped in and stopped the bout. And Fejo immediately burst into tears, clearly emotional over his first world title win and a, a great win for the Brazilian for sure. Yeah, it was a really good win for him. I still love King Mo. I'm a big King Mo fan. Um, I like his personality, his charisma. I kind of like his fighting style too because, again, here's a guy who uh, – you know, we talk about Gergel, like King Mo's a wrestler, and uh, 
he wrestled, but he also liked to go in there and like trade hands too. And it didn't always turn out well for him, but I feel like he really wanted to, to be a fighter in there. He didn't just want to be a wrestler and, you know, he knocked some guys out. It paid off for him. Um, clearly he was not as prepared though, from a game plan perspective in this fight as he was against Gegard Musasi. with Musasi. It was takedown, 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 takedown. And uh, Musasi had no defense. And Musasi probably should have won that fight, but he did it because he had no plan and he underestimated King Mo. Uh, but, you know, King Mo, I, you know, he made some mistakes. Uh, he opened himself up. He got careless. He started swinging wildly, as you said. He paid the price. Uh, and then he got the knee to the face and it was all over. Um, I will say I, I did like how, how King Mo, he didn't just fall apart. He didn't quit. He grabbed onto the legs. He tried to hang in there. He 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 did everything he could to stay in this fight. And um, had it been toward the end of a round, maybe he survives. And we've got another couple good rounds. But there was so much time left. And it was just not good. Uh, but he showed a lot of heart. It's a tough night for him. And, uh, you know, I think Musasi um, would have beat. Uh, maybe they, I don't know if they fought or not. But, like, it's a weird thing where... King Mo beats Musasi. I think Musasi would have easily beaten Feijiao. It just, you know, didn't happen for King Mo tonight. Uh, he wasn't disciplined enough. Uh, but I, I had nothing to good things to say about, about King Mo. Uh, he's obviously dabbled in the world of pro wrestling. Yep. And he's, to me, he's one of those guys who far should have been a bigger star in the sport than he was. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, I think if he'd gone to UFC, I think he would have been a, an even bigger star if he at least would have had a run in the UFC. Uh, but yeah, always very, very entertaining. Great, uh, great interview. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of his too. He's agreed to come on the podcast at some point. So we're, we're going to, we're planning to have him on and we'll be talking more about him in the future. But he would be back in Strike Force. It wouldn't be for a year uh, while the new champ would defend his title against Dan Henderson the following March. But that's it. Uh, for this uh, for this event, no fighters popped for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. Unfortunately, no uh, fighter payroll, so we don't know what the salaries were. Uh, but I, overall, I didn't love this card. Uh, Griggs, like I said, was kind of a jerk in the fight with Lashley, who got blown up and paid the price. Nunes should have gotten DQ'd, and Gurgel is possibly the least strategic fighter in MMA history. The Kennedy-Jacare fight, in my opinion, was was pretty boring for the most part. Mo Feijal was was fun uh, in moments, but really couldn't save the night over the overall star making performance for Fe for Feijal. He had a new champ in Jacare, but I just wasn't really into this card. I just just didn't enjoy it that much. But Josh, what did you think? You know, to me, it sort of felt like a, an MMA show. I didn't really feel a strong strike force vibe at all, other than obviously the announcing crew and Frank Shamrock really makes it for me. I mean, I think he's He's really good on commentary, and I think he was really good on this show. But it felt just like a lot of guys doing MMA. There was not a lot of linear history to this card. Uh, Gus Johnson, this was his worst announcing performance as far as I'm concerned. We didn't go into all the things that he said that was just ridiculous, and the t his tone is off. Uh, but I did not like what he did here, so that was kind of a stain. Um I, I, it was an okay show for me. I, I think I probably liked it a little bit more than you. I thought Lashley and Griggs was good as we talked about it. I mean, I was stunned that Griggs was able to pull that off. And it's kind of stunning to watch uh, Bobby Lashley just sort of, you know, blow up and quit because he's exhausted and getting 
hit in the head and he's bleeding. I, I thought to me that was a pretty good spectacle. Uh, you know, Tim Kennedy, just he's fun to watch because he's so smart and tactical, but I don't think he did enough to, to win that fight. And uh, it, it's still fun to watch that that battle. And King Mo, exciting fighter, and he got knocked out and it was kind of, memorable so i think i liked it a little bit more than you um it's not really like wow what a this was a emblematic of everything strike force had to offer the mma world it was sort of a mishmash in terms of the talent but yeah i give it like a c plus b minus yeah i I, yeah i just wasn't you made some good points there and i I just yeah i just wasn't a huge fan so uh but uh yeah you know it like i said we got two new champions and so that's it ends up being an important show but just not one of my favorite ones to watch but looking ahead it has not been recorded yet but Fajia has agreed to be on the podcast I'm trying to get that done this week so we can run it next week I'm excited about talking with him we'll delve into his big title win and can, uh, provided we're able to get him on after that we'll be covering Diaz versus Nunes too uh, which is a fight that I can't wait to get into. And then we're going to kind of take a little bit of a, a different path. We're going to dive into the EA Sports MMA video game with one of the leads on the project, uh, former EA producer Rob Hyder. So I, I, I mean, that's going to be an interesting one, and kind of I think it's going to be in something of a sleeper episode. Uh, we haven't recorded it yet, uh, but I, I'm looking forward to that. And then we've got some other things in the pipeline as well. But as always, follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod, and you can reach me at Phil at InsideTheHexagon.com. Would love to hear from you, get your thoughts, your feedback, your ideas. Uh, if you want to get involved with the show, would love to hear from you as well. Uh, but, Josh, I appreciate your time today. With that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy, and we will see you soon. <laughs> should be simple just put on your shoes and go and yet when you try to learn about how to get better at it especially as you age you're confronted with conflicting advice complicated workouts and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you on the planted runner i'll share exactly how to run faster longer and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.